Our scripture reading today is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the future, with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning everyone. How are we doing today? What an exciting day. I can't wait. I've been looking forward to this Sunday for a long time. Uh, can't wait for the baptisms. Can't wait for the lunch. Grateful that you joined us today. If you are new, uh, my name is Jeff. I get to serve on staff here and I am excited to share with you this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Romans chapter 8. Um, Romans is a very famous book of the Bible written by a guy named Paul. In Somewhere near the end of the Bible, it's kind of sandwiched between a couple other letters that Paul wrote. Now, Paul is a pretty fascinating person. He seems to be one of those people that's all in with whatever he's doing. Some of those people that when they focus on something, they're at 180% all the time. The first time we meet Paul, he's a guy named Saul. And he's witnessing the stoning of a young Christian named Stephen. Watching and approving of the suffering endured by Stephen as a follower of Jesus. Approving of that suffering because he was a follower of Jesus. But God, in a very miraculous way, saves Paul's life. Uh, he meets Jesus on a road, and his whole life gets flipped upside down. He now takes that 180% and focuses it squarely on serving and following Jesus. And the suffering that he once inflicted on Christians now becomes a part of his reality. He writes this in 2 Corinthians 11. This is the suffering that he went through for following Christ. He says this, 11, uh, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in, co in cold and exposure. Paul had an intimate relationship with suffering. He inflicted it. He endured it. And he ultimately died suffering in a Roman jail. And I tell you all of this, this little background on Paul, because this should give us 
great confidence as we jump into this passage today. Um, but before we do, let's look. We're going to center this teaching of this sermon around two points. Um, our pain, point one, and God's promise, point two. So Paul writes this in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, think back to what Paul just went through, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Suffering is nothing, Paul's saying, to the glory that is to be revealed. Now, what's he talking about here? If we look back two verses in Romans, Paul is going to talk about Christians, we, and Jonathan taught on this last week, being heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So the same kind of theme. Suffering, glory, suffering with Christ, that we may be glorified with Christ. He writes this in 16, 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. But what does it mean to, be, to suffer with Christ? At a basic level, it means that when we suffer, and we all will, when we suffer, we follow Christ in that suffering. To suffer with Christ is to follow him within, with our suffering. Sometimes we suffer as a direct result of our devotion to Jesus. But sometimes suffering just comes from living in a broken world. Doesn't it? And as we suffer, to suffer for Christ is to suffer with Christ. It's to suffer for Christ. And as we begin this teaching this morning, the first question we have to ask ourselves, and it's one that takes brutal vulnerability, is this, is do I believe following Jesus is worth it? Do I believe it's worth it to suffer with Christ and to suffer for Christ? We've talked about this a lot over the years that, um, you know, San Diego, the main kind of small g God in San Diego is comfort. The people are constantly pursuing comfort. Freedom, relaxation, the beach. We have all, this, all these images and all these messages coming at us. Find comfort. Seek comfort. And the question we have to ask as Christians is like, do I believe the gospel? Do I believe in Jesus to the degree that I'm willing to suffer? Now, here's where I want us to be careful as we think about the relationship between suffering and glory as it relates to this passage. The natural inclination is to, th is to think, suffer now, glory later. In other words, we pour out our cup for Jesus' suffering because one day he's going to what? He's going to fill that cup back up. But that's not what Paul's saying here at all. What Paul is essentially saying is that we're going to pour out the thimble of suffering into the ocean of glory that we will receive in the future. That the suffering today is insignificant. It's nothing compared to the glory to come. Now you may be frustrated by that. You might be offended by that. Because suffering is real, isn't it? It's incredibly painful. And this illustration is not meant to minimize suffering. Rather, it gives us a picture of the overwhelming reality of the glory to come. It doesn't minimize what you're going through. But it is a promise and it's a picture of the incredible glory that awaits us for those of us who follow Jesus. 
a glory we wait for and a glory, ironically, that this world is waiting for. Look at 19. He writes, that the, for, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, this verse is a little unique, the revealing of the sons of God, um, which is you and me. Tim Keller writes that, he said, it must mean that our sonship will be publicly revealed, evident and acknowledged. And it also means that we will be finally and fully conformed to the likeness of the Son. We will be as perfectly holy as Christ, and thus as dazzlingly beautiful as he is. That is what glory is. That is what we are waiting for. The redemption of our bodies, when Jesus returns, is going to bring a certain level of freedom, obviously to ourselves, but also to the created world that is longing for it. Longing for it. Some real mystery here. When we are glorified, creation is also going to go through a redemption. For, and he kind of continues his thought in 20 and 21, creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, which is interesting, but because of him who subjected it, that's God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's a lot there, but to understand what Paul's kind of getting at here, we must understand the biblical story of creation. If you're new to faith, the, the creation story happens at the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. Humans are created last. They're put in charge of the garden. They're put in charge of creation. And their job is to care for it, to tend to it. But what happens? They sin. They sin and are kicked out of the garden. The Adam and Eve, the humans there go, we, we don't want to worship God. We want to be God. And what, what was harmonious, what had great harmony becomes disharmony. Sin enters the world because of their desire to worship themselves. And guess what? Nothing's changed in 2023. We're still worshiping what was created. And therefore, since it was never intended to be worshipped, it gets distorted. As we look at verse 20, what stands out is that God, the creator, subjected creation to futility. Why? Why would God subject creation to futility? The story of scripture that we see from Genesis through, through Revelation is the story of God bringing things from death to life. N.T. Wright says this, When we look at the world of creation as it is in the present, we see a world in the same condition as the children of Israel where they, when they were enslaved in Egypt. Just as God allowed the Israelites to go down into Egypt so that in bringing them out, he could define them forever as the freedom from slavery people, so God has allowed creation to be subjected to its present round of summer and winter, growth and decay, birth and and death. It's beautiful, yes, but it always ends in tears or at least a shrug of the shoulders. God is a God of redemption. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. Death is, inter is introduced, but a plan is set in motion for God to redeem his people. And part of that plan is taking his people into Egypt. They become slaves, which is a kind of living death. And he does that because 
he's going to then bring them out of Egypt. They're going to know that he is God. He's taking them into the promised land. He is redeeming them. God is a God of constant redemption. But the created world, because of this futility, can be brutal and unforgiving, can't it? Consider the damage, destruction, and death that happens through natural disasters. The relentlessness of the sea and rivers, the brutality of the animal world. How many own a fish tank? There's no more brutal environment in the whole world than a fish tank. We have cute, colorful fish that if one of them gets injured, will rip each other to shreds on a regular basis. Right? Brutal. We have buried many fish down the swirling pool of the porcelain toilet. <laughs> the animal world is hostile. It's brutal. Keller says that nature is a realm of pain and suffering. It's living in this futility, this struggle. And Paul's going to illustrate this pain with the picture of childbirth. He says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pain of childbirth until now. The beginning of life in pain will eventually lead to the reality of the end of life. Keller continues his thought, writing that no experience is untainted by pain, even if it is only a pain of knowing that this experience can't, that that experience can last. What he's saying is even in the best moments of life, our weddings, incredible travel experiences, college, friendships, the best experiences in our life. And if you think back and go, what are the top two or three greatest experiences in your life? Deep down, there's always that nagging reality that what? That's going to end. That this can't last forever. Wesley, not John, speaking in the cinematic masterpiece, The Princess Bride, he says to the Princess Bride herself, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who tells you differently is selling something. But we are sold the truth of this area that comfort and culture is what we should try to attain, should go after. How can we live a relatively pain-free life? But even those of us that have sought for comfort through our work, through, through our finances, however it is, we all know the inevitable reality that's what? That death is coming. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. Another translation says, it is all meaningless. Everything under the sun is meaningless. Ray Ortland Jr. says, this life is not really life. Our present existence is a living death. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Such a heavy topic that Paul's introducing here with the futility of creation, but so important. And it's important because the story's not finished. The sermon isn't over. We're not going to stop and pray and be done. Some of you might hope that comes soon. It is, but it's not finished. Like we're in the middle because we need to move on to point number two, which is God's promise. The reality of our pain 
and the truth of God's promise. Let's go back to verse 21. The creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It will be freed from corruption. Even now, though creation has been corrupted, it can take your breath away, can't it? Even now, we can be totally moved, transfixed, drawn closer to the Creator because of the beauty of the world He's created. There is an indescribable feeling when you encounter raw, natural beauty in this world, whether you see a wild animal in its environment. Whether you're in the mountains of Colorado, the beaches of Hawaii, the incredible rocks in Yosemite, it takes your breath away. I want to show you a quick picture. A couple weeks ago, we went to Breckenridge as a family. And this is at the top of one of the peaks in, in Breck, if you've ever been there. And you look in the background, and it is majestic. You just go, my gosh, I cannot believe God created this. It is so beautiful. But creation is groaning. And my created legs were groaning about four minutes after that picture when my eight-year-old is in tears, and I have her between my legs skiing down this. This isn't Big Bear, okay? Colorado mountains are huge, and I'm... I'm I'm skiing her down, and I am in so much pain. So even the beauty of that picture, I go and I laugh because I'm like, that was right before everything fell apart, right? Groaning. Now imagine, though, I've been thinking about this. Imagine a creation free from its current futility and bondage. You look at that picture and you go, oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. But imagine the creation that's not dying, but continually being made new. I think that is a picture of what we're going to one day experience. A creation continually being made new. Not in this season of spring, summer, winter, fall, and then winter. But always being made new. It's why this birth pain illustration is so brilliant that Paul does. Pain is not meaningless, but rather bring forth new Life. The, the writer uh, of Isaiah gives some prophecy and he gives a picture of the life to come. The life beyond this when there is redemption and God's glory is revealed. And he writes, he writes this in regard to the natural world. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw with the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Terrifying picture. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. This is a fully restored creation. Is this a dream? No, it's a promise. Creation is waiting for God to once again restore his children to faithfully rule and care for what he has created, which is what we were created to do to begin with. But while creation waits, while we wait, there is a discontent not with, just with creation, but within us. There is a groaning for life to be different. Have you felt that before? There is a groaning that this doesn't feel right internally, 
Externally, something's got to change. There is a groaning. He writes in 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What are the first fruits? The Bible talks about first fruits several times. The first fruits were the first batch that would come from the trees each year, but they were also a foretaste of what to come. So we've been given the first fruits of the Spirit, a taste today of what's to come in the future. And as Christians, we live in this tension between the promise of our full redemption and our present reality. And this tension is what leads to the groaning. We know something's kind of right, but not totally right. And it's encapsulated in the Spirit's work, and he writes this. This tension is encapsulated in the fact that the Spirit is already, in work, already at work within us, but has not yet completed the task of full renewal. We have the first fruits of the Spirit's life. Paul uses the harvesting image of early sheaves to offer, offer to God as a sign of a great crop still to come. In other words, we are adopted. Thank you, Lord. Sealed. We are his kids, but we do not have full family resemblance yet. We display his image. We kind of look like him, but not fully. That is coming. But what we have is hope. What we have is hope. We have the reality of the Spirit today, and we have hope of future glory as well. 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he, for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. Hope for what we have now and also hope for what is to come. This is what it means to be a Christian. We hope for what we have now. We hope for what is to come. This is why the church can be a city on a hill, a beacon of light. All of creation is in labor, longing for God's new world to be born. The church is called to share that pain and that hope. The church is not to be a part from the, apart from the pain of the world. Rather, it is to be in prayer at precisely the place where the world is in pain. That is part of our calling, our high but strange role within God's purposes for new creation. We are right at the center of the pain of this world because we have hope today. We have hope for the future. We get to point people to a glorious hope we cannot see. This is what we're going to be doing after church and baptism, right? Pointing people to hope from death to life through the water of what God has already done in the lives and the hearts of these young people that are to be baptized. An incredible honor and privilege that God gives us to steward creation, to tend for creation, tend to creation. As we are redeemed, so creation will be redeemed. I want to close this morning with some encouragement. You know, it's one thing to say that we have this hope. It's another to believe it or live it day to day. In other words, sometimes if we're honest, it's hard to get the promises of God from the head to the heart, isn't it? 
couple months ago, I preached on, on Romans 5 and talked about the, the key to rejoicing in suffering is grieving our story. Grieving our story. The key to rejoicing in suffering is to look back on our life, try to pinpoint those moments of deep sorrow and grief. Sorrow, pain. And to go into those moments and grieve our story. And this is, this is something that the Bible supports all the way through. If we, a couple quick verses. We read this today in our call to worship. We, weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus is the most perfect human to ever walk this earth. And yet he's known as the man of what? Sorrows. He grieved deeply. And as we grieve, we go through this process that Paul's talking about here. We groan and we grieve. And then out of that, God uses that as a redemptive work in our life and in our heart. I mentioned a couple months ago that I've been seeing a counselor for a couple months, a guy named Jim. And he said this as it, results, as it relates to Romans 8 in grief. He said, we don't groan deeply enough because we don't know how hungry we are. Only in the depths of our gro- groaning will we get a glimpse of the glory. Only in the depths of our groaning will we fully understand God's glory. Now there is a glory to come, but there is a glory in our life today as we grieve, as we groan, as we go back into our story and go, and go God, what, this happened to me. What is your redemptive plan? And we grieve that and then we see his hand of redemption in it. Groaning is grieving. It's a crying out, a longing for something we don't have. Creation's crying out. The Israelites cried out as slaves in Egypt, and God rescued them. And as we groan inwardly, as we wait for God's hand of redemption, he wants to continue to redeem you, not save you, but continue to redeem you, to show you those first fruits of his grace in your life. The more you grieve, the more you groan, the more you push into your story, the more you're going to experience God's glory in your own life. Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's another thing Jim has opened up and shown me through our time together. He says that, that while we're on earth, grieving and groaning will never end because the blessing of God will never end. We will always grieve and groan because we will always be blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Friends, don't ignore the groaning in your heart and your soul. Because this verse seems like, oh wait, I need to focus on the future, on hope. All my thoughts on hope. No, no. Go into your groaning. Push into your grieving. And you will experience that hope like you never have before. God will meet you there. And for those of us that are here that are searching, that are asking questions, trying to understand who this Jesus is, let me encourage you that there is a purpose and a hope for the groaning in your own heart. There's a purpose and a hope for the groaning in your own heart. It is Jesus. And he went to the cross thousands of years ago to take our sin, our pain, our hurt forever. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants you to, con- he wants to continue to unpack your story so that you see how incredible he is. 
I want to close with a quote from Ray Orland Jr. This is how he closed out his commentary on Romans, on this section of Romans 8. He writes this, Whatever the condition of your heart, look to Jesus. See him there enthroned over all, the Lord of nature and history. See him there, the lover of our souls and even of our bodies. See him there, declaring promises not too trivial for us to believe, but so great we struggle to swallow them whole. Look to Jesus. Behold his glory. And whatever the world may say, say with all true Christians, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Let's pray together. What a gift we've been given. How humbling, Lord, that even when creation was distorted so many years ago, that you had a plan, that there was hope even then. You sent Jesus into this world that through his work on the cross, through his resurrection from the grave, we have the chance at redemption, the chance for peace from our groaning, to experience a glory that none of us here can even fathom, but one that is coming soon. And the reality that you've given us the Spirit, the first fruits, that we can experience who you are today, that you're not done with us. Being a Christian isn't stamping a ticket and waiting for heaven. It's understanding more of you. It's growing deeper in our relationship with you. It's understanding ourself. It's giving you our pain, and in doing so, it's understanding your incredible love for us. And so we thank you, God, for sending Jesus. We thank you for the, that you are such a loving father that cares for his kids. And I pray that we are a church on a hill, that people see us, that we enter into pain, because we do have hope. Hope that will never go away. Hope that will never be extinguished. Hope that will never die. Because you are God. We give you all the praise, honor, and glory this morning. In your son Jesus' name I pray all of this. Amen.